Thank you for joining us in our Luke series, the most important story ever told. So, looking back a, a few weeks ago, as we uh, were in the first part of Luke chapter 7, uh, we ended here with a story where Jesus goes to the city, a city called Nain, and while he's there, uh, there's a funeral for this young man that had died, taken place, and, and Jesus interrupts the funeral and raises the dead. That's the story we, we stopped off on, okay? And, uh, and so you're going to see the response of the people as we pick up the text here, uh, starting in verse 16. But here's what I want you to hear. Jesus interrupts the funeral and raises the dead. Right after I stepped into full-time ministry, the guy that mentored me, my buddy Walt, we were talking, and I said, Walt, I've been asked to do a funeral. And I, I've never done a funeral before. I've never stepped in that space of doing a funeral before. And Walt, I, I don't know exactly what to do. And Walter said this to me. He said, uh, don't read the Gospels. And I said, what do you mean, don't read the Gospel? He said, every funeral Jesus attended, he screwed it up. He raised them from the dead. So he gives us nothing to go with. And I was like... And I'll be doggone as I've read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels over the years. Richard, every funeral Jesus attends, even after they're dead. Hey, Lazarus, come on, man, get up. And, and, and so even the boy here that is being carried out, he raises him. So Jesus really gives us nothing in doing funerals other than he's going to speak life, and that's what he does, and so it's crazy. As a result of Jesus doing what Jesus has done, not only raising this dead boy from the grave, he had healed this centurion servant, uh, one of his favorite guys. It says this in 16, great fear and reverence swept through the crowd. They praised God, saying, a mighty prophet has risen among us. God has visited his people today. And the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the countryside. So the people are getting pumped. They conclude, man, God has raised up a powerful, anointed, unique. We've never seen a messenger prophet like this ever. Their response, they end up praising God. Look at God. God's good. God cares about his people. And the result was that Jesus' influence and reputation was spreading even more. Now, that last verse... Let me get back to it. The disciples of John the Baptist told JB, JB, John the Baptist, about everything that Jesus was doing. Why is that important? When you get to verse 20, Matthew chapter 11 captures the same story. Powerful story. John the Baptist was in prison. He was in prison. We'll get to that. He sent his disciples to ask Jesus a question. Hey, guys, y'all need to go ask Jesus something for me. Okay, what, 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 what do you want us to ask him? Go ask Jesus if he's really the expected one or should we look for someone else? <laughs> Jesus had healed many people of diseases, afflictions, evil spirits, even gave sight to many who were blind. Jesus answered them and said, here's what I want you to go back and tell John. Go and report to John what you've seen and heard. Tell John that the blind receive sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are being raised up. And tell John that the poor have the gospel preached to them. And, and tell John, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So Jesus is asked a heartfelt question 
from a guy that has known Jesus since they were both in diapers. They've been with each other since birth. John the Baptist is totally familiar with Jesus. It was even prophesied that he was going to be the forerunner, that he would come on the scene, that he would be preaching, make straight the way of the Lord, etc. He said, now, 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 why would he pose this question to Jesus? Are you really the expected one or should we be looking for someone else? Here's where I want to go. Have you ever faced disappointment in your life and asked the Lord, what is happening? Have you ever faced disappointment and posed the question, why am I going through this? Why me? <laughs> why now? Lord, what, what did I do? Lord, what are you trying to teach me in this? Lord, this doesn't make sense. Lord, this hurts. I'm exhausted. I've had enough. How long will I suffer? And then we lean into, Lord, how long are you going to appear to be silent? I haven't heard from you. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what's happening. I'm exhausted. I'm spent. I'm physically fatigued. Look at verse 23. We're going to tie this one in throughout it. Paraphrasing it, blessed are you who refuse to run from me and quit. When life gets so tough, blessed are you. When life is so hard, blessed are you that refuse to run from me. Blessed are you who run to me and stay with me and trust me. Even when your expectations are not being met. That verse right there, verse 23 out of Luke 7, same verse in Matthew chapter 11, verse 6. I'm telling you, I memorized that verse years ago. There's a reason why. So, as we contemplate this text, I want to give you five observations from Luke chapter 7 here. The first observation I would make to you and if you've got your little Luke journals or whatever you're writing in, I would encourage you to write this down. You go, yes, I understand this point, Tim. Following Jesus is not easy. Following Jesus is not easy, Dallas. John was in prison. Following Jesus was very costly to him. John was arrested. He's about to be decapitated, beheaded. Why? Did they throw him in the slammer for doing drugs or for robbery or for breaking the law? Not, no. What did he do? He was incarcerated for preaching the gospel and for proclaiming the righteousness of God. If you go back and study his narrative of how he landed in prison, there was a big chief guy named Herod. He was the ringleader back in this day. And Herod had hooked up with his brother, Philip's wife. Her name's Herodias. And John, when he saw Herod with Herodias, he looked at them and said, what you're doing is not right. What you're doing is not lawful before God. What you're doing is, is sin. 
And, and, and so they threw him eventually in jail. We're going to incarcerate this dude right here. Now follow what happens. So then Herod has this big gala party celebration, and Herodias is with him. And during this party, Herodias has a daughter, and she dances for Herod. And while she dances, Herod says, you can have anything you want. You bring me great pleasure. And mom looks at the daughter, Herodias, to her daughter and says, tell Herod, we want John the Baptist's head on a platter. You would go, that is sick, twisted, warped. That, that's messed up. But what she was doing was this. Man, I love being with the king. I love the lavishness of this lifestyle. I love the pleasure. I love what we've got going on. And so what we need to do is we need to get rid of the messenger so we don't listen to any more messages like that. John in prison about to be decapitated. Eugene Peterson and his translation of the New Testament, the message, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, I like the way he captures this verse. Jesus says this, anyone who intends to come with me and follow me and hang with me and be with me has to let me lead. Uh, you're not in the driver's seat, I am. Don't run from suffering, embrace it. Follow me. And I will show you how to live. I would meditate on that verse over the week if I was you. But as I pondered it myself, I sat there and started to think. Personally, for about 22 years, almost 23 years, especially during those teenage, adolescent years in my early 20s, I was not willing to count the cost to follow Jesus. I wanted to do things my way. I wanted to be in the driver's seat. I wanted to satisfy my flesh. I wanted to pursue the desires and appetites of the flesh. And I often thought, well, if I really follow Jesus, what am I going to have to give up? I can't be cool and I can't be the player. If I follow Jesus, what all am I going to have to give up? And then I read words like, Embrace suffering. Do what? That doesn't sound appealing to my flesh. Deny self, that doesn't sound appealing. And I finally got so tired and so sick of being sick and living a life of misery that I'm like, Lord, would you please take control? As I look back on those years from 13 to almost 23, a 10-year window, I stand before for you, and I confess, I was a terrible driver of my life. Got any terrible drivers in the room? Anybody that drove it in the ditch? Anybody that just got stuck? Anybody that just said, man, I have jacked this up royally. So I asked Jesus, please take the will. But the problem over the years, Julie, is I've grabbed the will back at times. Man, this ain't going the way I want it to. And 
This narrative is not unfolding. There's too much junk in my life and people are crazy. I'm going to grab it again, Ray. And God goes, how's that working for you? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who would die a martyr's death, was killed for his faith underneath that Hitler regime. Bonhoeffer made this observation. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. He bids him to endure the cross, which is not a tragedy, because it's in the suffering where the fruit of an exclusive allegiance to Jesus Christ is going to be manifested and revealed. Hey, I'm going to ask you to come and die. Jesus said, anyone who wishes to come after me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. And he's like, hey, 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 you've got to be willing to live this life where you're going to suffer and you're going to be attacked and there's going to be adversity and persecution. But in this exclusive allegiance to Jesus is where you're going to see spiritual fruit take place. And I guarantee you when we look at life every day, and if I walked around in this room to each individual and said, hey, man, I've got this line over here called the line of pleasure and fun. And over here, I've got the line of suffering. I invite you into the line of suffering. How many people would just run toward that? But suffering is the universal language. Every person in this room is experiencing pain and heartache and difficulty. And suffering is the thread that really does bond us all together. None of us can escape pain. Trouble comes our way. We hurt with heartaches and we've got hangups and we've got difficulty. And just when we think that we see the light at the end of the tunnel, bam, it's a freight train and we get hit again. Come on. So we live in this twisted, sinful world. And around us every day, we're flooded with chaos and corruption. And when God doesn't answer us, and when God doesn't respond immediately to us to rescue us from our pain and suffering, oftentimes we assume he doesn't hear or he doesn't care. And what we do is we end up trying to Grab the wheel back again, going, I, I need to drive this thing one more day. And our world does everything to try to get us to eliminate pain or eliminate feeling pain. You ever thought that? You ever been cruising through life and it's going pretty good, then all of a sudden, bam, bam. And you start crying out to God and you're praying, Lord, what's up with this? Why? I can't handle it. And, and, and are you distant? Are you silent? God, what is going on? And tragedy and suffering never reveal us. It just exposes us. It exposes where our heart is, what our allegiance is. And we live in this culture, this twisted culture that's adapted this philosophy of escapism. Escapism is how you deal with life, which means you seek pleasure and do everything you can to eliminate pain. Escapism. Escapism tries to avoid the unpleasant, the painful, that which requires effort. Ignore the pressures of daily life. You just need to escape. 
Anytime you've got these feelings of, of sadness or these feelings of fear. You need to avoid reality. What you need to do is you need to fill your mind with activity and entertainment. You need to go somewhere else or maybe, maybe, maybe you just need to sedate and medicate with drug and alcohol. The best thing you can do, escapism says, is when you're starting to hurt and really feel what you're feeling, you need to numb. Doesn't work. And because we live in this pleasure-seeking, hedonistic culture, Nick and I have talked about this so much, that mourning and grieving is a foreign concept for most people. We don't know how to hurt. We don't know how to feel. We don't know how to grieve. We don't know how to process. And so many people are like, just drink another bottle, brother. You'll be all right. And it drives us into a deeper hell and a deeper prison Proverbs 2117 uh, says, whoa, this is a great proverb, guys. Those who love pleasure will become poor. What are you saying? I'm saying following Jesus is not easy. I'm saying taking up our cross every day and following the Lord is hard. I'm saying that there's a cost involved. But I would pose this question to you. What's the other options? You know, if you follow the Lord, son, and, and you really violently repent and surrender, it's not easy. What's the other option? Pursue the flesh, seek pleasure, sedate, medicate, which you are going to kill yourself in doing it. The best option is to repent and surrender. Here's my second observation from this text. Following Jesus easy? No, John. It's not easy. I know you're in prison. I know it's rough. And I know why you were locked up and how you got there. The second observation I would make is God is not threatened by your questions. He goes, do me a favor, go ask Jesus if he's really the expected one or should we be looking for someone else. When Jesus comes on the scene and, and, and launches his public ministry, he was not what the Jews thought he was going to be. They thought he was going to be this earthly king setting up this reign and rule here and now. And yes, man, he's going to take over Rome and he's going to kick butt and take names. And he, he ruined their and spoiled their idea of what a Messiah and, and when you read this, I can promise you Jesus was not exactly what John expected. You see, John the Baptist, he comes on the scene, and God had given him a message. And he came out of the gate, and he was preaching judgment and repentance. Make straight the way of the Lord. Turn or burn. Get right or get left. John the Baptist comes with his judgment and repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus shows up on the scene, and Jesus is proclaiming mercy and forgiveness. John was being true with what God had called John to do. It's not like John had missed the assignment. He was being true to being that last prophet that God would raise up before Messiah. But Jesus comes on the scene, and he's preaching mercy and forgiveness. Chris, he's preaching this, and John is not expecting things to end this way. So this is the way this is going to end. I'm a man of the wilderness, and now I'm incarcerated. And 
I'm a man that's floated out in the desert for years, and now I'm in isolation and solitude. Yeah. I was anointed and appointed to preach, and now I'm being persecuted and silenced. Yeah. Yeah. How many hours had he spent incarcerated, just kind of locked up, just chained, pondering life, pondering where he had been, pondering where he was at right now, thinking about the inevitable future. I'm about to be killed. When you go through times of crisis and tragedy and pain, it's amazing how much time you spend just sitting there you can be with people and not be with people. You, you can be sitting there staring off into God knows who and where, and you can be with these other people and not be with these people, and they're like, hey, wh where are you right now? And you might be reli reliving something that happened a year ago or five years ago or 20 years ago, and, and you're, you're just... Pondering. Hey, you know you're about to be decapitated. They're about to come for your head. I know. Ask Jesus if he's really the expected one, the Messiah. And it wouldn't make logical sense for us to reason from this position, right? If God chose John to prepare the way for the Messiah, what is he doing in prison about to die? I mean, we would assume, it, Jesus, if you're really the expected one and the anointed one and the Messiah, it would make sense to us that you would send down fire on the oppressors of John and at least get him out of prison. That would make sense, humanly speaking. But it didn't happen. And every one of us in this room has had disappointment with God. Why didn't you rescue me from my pain? Why didn't you rescue me from this suffering? Why did you let this unfold? I'm saved. I, I'm, I've tried to be faithful to the Lord. Don't, don't miss this. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. We think this. If I do A... And if I do B, Spencer, and if I do C, then I'm going to get the desired results that I want. I've got the equation that's going to make God, he, he's going to be there for me. He's my cosmic little genie. I've done A. I go to church. I walked an aisle, prayed a prayer. Maybe you haven't, but maybe you have. Well, I wrote a check one time. Remember 18 years ago, I volunteered at B BBS. Praise the Lord. I've done A, I've done B, I've done C. Thus, I should have this desired result that I want, right? No. I'm eating locust and honey. I'm wearing this non-GQ camel's hair. That's what John the Baptist did. I've lived in the wilderness. I've been faithful. I sanctified myself. Even the Nazarite vow, all this stuff. 
John, you did A, you did B, you did C, and guess what? Philip Yancey, one of my favorite writers, he has written books called Disappointment with God. Where is God when it hurts? The question that never goes away. I pondered Yancey over the years because I feel like he's honest. And Yancey made this statement. He said, one bold message in the book of Job is that you can say anything to God. You can throw at him your grief, your anger, your doubt, your bitterness, even your betrayal and your disappointment. He can handle them all. Even spiritual giants of the Bible are shown contending with God, wrestling with God, struggling with God. And they prefer to go away limping like Jacob rather than to shut God out. You cannot deny your feelings or make them disappear, so you might as well express them to God. God can deal with every human, every human response except one, an attempt to ignore him or to try to treat him as though he doesn't exist. Has every person that has ever walked the planet in a human robe of flesh had struggles and questions and doubts. Yes, even our Savior that was 100% God and 100% man, as he hung suspended on the cross, Jesus would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Nick, I think inviting people into the struggle, into questions, is so absolute essential. I started compiling things 12 or 15 years ago. I've got this folder open. I'm like, this is going to be my book one day whenever I decide to release a book. I write stuff. I journal stuff. I put stuff down in this book. And you know what I've titled my book? I've titled it The Struggle. The Struggle. Getting introduced to a twisted view of God, getting introduced to legalism, getting introduced to porn, getting introduced to alcohol, getting introduced, and, 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 and I've written all this stuff out like life has been a struggle. Even as I've walked with God, if you study Romans 9, 10, and 11, ah, if you study Romans 9, 10, and 11, it says that God chose us wild olive Gentiles and grafted us into Israel. The name Israel, when we study Israel in Scripture, Nathan, the name Israel means to struggle and to wrestle with God, but yet prevail. What did I get grafted into? A life of struggle. Let me, let me hit a thought here. Your view of God needs to include the following. Christian life is not easy. God can handle your disappointments. He can handle your questions, your struggles, and your pain. And it needs to include that you better be running to him and not be running from him. And you better learn not to be offended with what he's doing on any given day. Third observation would be this, Jim. Jesus is truly Messiah. Hey, go ask him if he's the expected one, the Messiah. And he goes, yeah, go tell John the blind are seeing and the deaf are hearing and the lame are walking and leaping and the lepers are being cleansed and even the dead are being raised. Listen, don't miss this. Every statement he makes there is a prophetic fulfillment 
fulfillment of what Messiah would be and do. Isaiah 35, Isaiah 61, Isaiah 62. John the Baptist was totally familiar with the Old Testament. So when Jesus quotes this, he's quoting Isaiah saying, John, you knew that when the Messiah came on the scene that he would reveal his identity to the people by doing these things here. And everything mentioned in this first little part is all about him doing something to the physical. Look, he, he can open blind eyes, deaf ears, lame legs. Look at him. He can even raise the dead. Look at what he's doing in the physical. And it was all prophecy being fulfilled. So when he quotes this, he's not just randomly saying, oh, look at me. He's quoting what John would be familiar with saying, John, you know that God blesses those who accept these credentials as being Messiah. John, you know I've got credentials to be Messiah. Yeah, 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 you do. So when we read this list, this list did not have an expiration date to it. Jesus is still doing miracles. The Holy Spirit is still doing miracles. He can do exceedingly abundantly above anything we can ask or think. So the question that we struggle with is, how big is my God? What is my God capable of doing? And do I really trust him? Am I going to run to him or run from him? Do I really believe that he is still able to do the miraculous? I, I do. Do I still believe that God is superior to any problem I may be facing? I do, and some of y'all have got some painful narratives you're living in right now, and you're thinking, man, look at how big this is. This is something I've quoted here for 12 years since I started pastoring, but don't miss it. When I first came to faith in Jesus, this changed everything for me, so much for me. I would tell God how big my problems were. Oh, God, look what I'm dealing with. This is brutal. And God goes, why don't you start telling your problems how big your God is? As long as you're focusing on your problems and you're telling God, look at how big my problems are, you're going to continue to allow your problems to define you and direct you. When you start telling your problems how big your God is, then your God will define you and direct you. Man, I had to get there. I had to get there, didn't know where I was like, God, you're bigger. And, and, and so when we wrap up our time even here this morning, it's gonna, we're going to have a time of prayer. And I want you to step into it. There's going to be people here that would, would pray with you and intercede with you. And you're like, man, I need prayer today. Here's a fourth observation. Jesus loves the oppressed. He loves the oppressed. He says, tell John that the gospel has been extended to the poor. Remember all that other list had to do with what Jesus was doing to the physical? Now he's extending it to the misfits. He goes, go tell John that the Gentiles, go tell John that the Samaritans, go tell John that the misfits, go tell John that the dogs with no pedigree, go tell John those on the other side of the track are being included in the gospel. People of that day were poor, they were hungry, they were sick, they were oppressed, they were mistreated, they were cheated, they were overtaxed. And he goes, man, you got to go tell John. The gospel is for the oppressed. 
And there's people today that are living lives, man, just oppressed and down and hopeless and helpless. And you feel like life has just been squeezed from you. You're just trying to make it one more day. You feel like just life has just been squeezed out of you. And you may be sitting there this morning thinking, man, I just wish that there was someone that could breathe life into me because I feel lifeless. Good news! Jesus is available. He is the life giver. And when he breathed into the nostrils of man and man became a living soul, he was breathing life. He's come that we might have life and have it to the full. And what we have to do today is we have to eliminate the parameters and boundaries we placed on what God is able to do. Adam, when we break those walls down and say, do what you want to do, I'm tired of trying to drive this thing. Watch God work. He's worked in my life. Richard, he's worked in your life. John Mark, he's setting us free today. Come on, Chad. Yes, hallelujah. Hey, go tell John. He, he's the Messiah. He loves those that are oppressed. He's, he really is the expected one. He's fulfilling all this prophecy. He's healing and he's saving and he's breaking down barriers and he's extended hope. And go tell him. Go tell those people on that Sunday morning at the cross. Yes, I'm Messiah. Yes, I'm Lord. Yes, I'm healer. Yes, I'm restorer. Yes, I can take whatever they're going through and turn their, their junk and their mess into a glorious message if they will just let me take the will. Last observation. Don't complain at how God works. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> Mr. Larry, you know this to be true. You ever complained and griped at the way God was coaching his team and how he was running things? He said, blessed is he who does not take offense at God, which means you will experience my favor in the midst of your struggle if you don't gripe at me. Don't you, don't you assume that you know what's best? Assume I know what's best. Don't assume that the hard times that you're going through today is an indicator that I am absent in the midst of your narrative. I'm right there with you. I love you. Hey, hey don't tell me how to be God. I've been God before I even spoke the stars into existence. You need to take a vacation from being God long enough to let me show you that I'm capable of being God, and you need to learn to Trust me. So here's the question, Tommy. What are you expecting? Are you the expected one? What are you expecting? My working definition of expectation is premeditated resentment in my heart. When I have an expectation, I've already premeditated that I'm going to resent you if you don't come through the way I want you to. It's already premeditated in there. 
And, and a lot of times we never communicate it to the other person. And so what ends up happening initially on the horizontal, we don't communicate it. We don't live with anticipation. We live with expectation. And so all of a sudden, you, you, I needed you to do this. Well, you didn't tell me. Well, I'm mad at you because you didn't do what I expected you to do. And we translate that from the horizontal to the vertical, and we end up getting mad at God. Well, you didn't meet my needs. You didn't rescue me. You didn't heal my daddy. You didn't, you didn't rescue my child. You let me grow up in a crappy environment. You did it. He goes, why don't you fire every question and concern that you have to me? Even the last chapter of Job, bam, bam, God, you, you, you put me through this and you let this happen. And oh, man, he has some jacked up friends coming over there saying, man, look at you, dude. There must be sin in your life. You must have done something wrong. And Job gets to the last chapter. Read it. And, and, and Job goes, this is after God goes, Job, 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 where were you when I? Spoke the worlds into existence. Where were you when I created the waters? When were, where were you when I slung the sun and moon in the sky? Job, where were you? And God lays out all this stuff, and Job goes, whoo-wee. I repent. I did not know who I was talking to. I had a wrong view of you. I, I, I got lost in the moment of some death and some things and losing my farm around here. God, I, 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 I didn't have a right view of who you were. And I think a lot of us, we don't have a right view of who God is. I'll close you with this. Verse 28 is a trippy verse in this narrative. Jesus makes this statement about JB. He goes, I, I tell you, of all those who have ever lived, of any dude that has ever been born of woman, none is greater than John the Baptist. That's what he said about him. <laughs> There's none greater. So let me tell you in conclusion and close about this great man. Nick, you guys can slide this way. This great man of God had questions, had doubts, had struggles, had concerns. They, they, Jesus said, look at him, the greatest born woman. Right there at the end, he had struggles, doubts, concerns, questions, pain. If, if the greatest, that's the greatest. If he had that, guess what? So will you. So will you. Did you run away? Nope. Did it all unfold exactly how you expected? Nope. What do you conclude, John? He's Messiah. He's Lord. He's Savior. He's everything. So here's the close. Are you going to trust him today to be able to drive the narrative of your story, no matter how crappy and painful and hurtful it has been? Are you going to give him your questions, your concerns, your doubts? 